The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. I'd like to go to 2 Peter chapter 1 to introduce our thoughts this morning. Um, this is a topic that's been rolling around in the back of my mind for quite a few months now. I haven't really felt led to, to speak on it. It seems that it's made its way more to the front of my mind this week, and uh, we hope that the Lord will bless our consideration of this. This is the thought that we want to meditate on together, that we hope the Holy Spirit can just apply this truth to our mind, that the Word of God is more reliable and more sure than personal experience, okay? The Word of God is more reliable and more sure than personal experience. And the personal experience that he's talking about here in Second Peter is the transfiguration. And I just can't really kind of wrap my head around the power of the truth of what he's saying here in these verses that I saw Jesus Christ transfigured on that mount. I heard the voice of God the Father say, this is my beloved son. And he says, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that we have a more sure word of prophecy than my firsthand eyewitness account of Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. That is powerful, okay? That is powerful. And we are so prone to misinterpret our personal experience, okay? Um, our, our emotions can confuse us, and we can misinterpret our personal experience. And another interesting point is that actually we're going to find that Peter misinterpreted his personal experience on that Mount of Transfiguration. He said some foolish things that are inaccurate. He, he, he misinterpreted uh, this experience, this amazing experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. But we have to have a lens and a source of truth through which to evaluate our personal experience. And we have to be willing to say from time to time that if my experience and what I believe to be this situation, if it is contrary to God's word, then I'm wrong. I'm wrong because God's word is more reliable than my perception of a personal experience. 2 Peter chapter 1, <clears throat> beginning in verse 16. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we were made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father, glory and honor when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. He's describing the eyewitness testimony that he saw Jesus Christ transfigured. And in contrast to that, he says in verse 19, but we have a more sure word of prophecy. We have something more reliable than even me seeing the transfigured Jesus Christ with my own two eyes. We have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your heart, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men, of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. <clears throat> you know, in some of the messages yesterday, I believe this was highlighted, that we can get in such a state where we're just not evaluating the, our circumstances properly around us. Uh, I mentioned, or I had the thought in a, one of those messages, especially for the buddy's message, about 
when we uh, may get discouraged and lose hope, like Jeremiah. Uh, I thought about uh, Elijah, certainly, right? Uh, going from that powerful victory on the mount against the false prophets, and then a day or two later, he is down in the dump saying, I'm the only one left, and Lord, take my life. But I really thought about John the Baptist. <clears throat> John the Baptist, who had a similar-ish experience. Not, not that he was saw Jesus transfigured, but he heard the voice of God. He heard the voice of God the Father after he baptized Jesus, saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And there came a point when John was uh, down in prison and down in the dumps that he sent some uh, messengers to say, are you really the Messiah? I mean, he knew it, right? Like, he knew that Jesus was the Messiah. But we can get in such a state where we begin to question things that we already know. And that's why you have to go back to the truth of God's Word. It's so important for us to study Scripture and, and memorize Scripture and hide God's Word in your heart. Because I'll tell you, when you are having these doubts come into your mind, Satan is crafty and he is smart and he's not going to do it when you got a Bible sitting in front of you, he's going to do it at your weakest moment. And that's why you have to hide God's word in your heart and be able to, to bring these, these verses to your mind uh, with the sword of the Spirit to combat those, those temptations of Satan. But even John the Baptist got so discouraged, and there in his moment of weakness, he began to question things that he clearly already knew. Okay? And... As multiple different circumstances come in our life, we, we can, <clears throat> we're susceptible to misinterpret something that we believe that God is calling us to, that we can misinterpret God's will, okay? Um, now, these are some very simple examples that I think are very, are very obvious and clear, um, but some of the things that we deal with is probably not this obvious and clear. Okay, so <clears throat> if you feel as a sister in the church that God's calling you to preach, well, that's contrary to God's word because uh, a person that teaches authoritatively in public worship as an elder or bishop is the husband of one wife. And that's not a qualification that a sister can meet. Now, uh, we're thankful that there are avenues in the church and in the kingdom uh, where you can teach. The aged sisters can instruct and teach the younger sisters. You have the blessing of uh, teaching either your own children, but even if you don't have children, you have many little ones in the church that you can minister to. So there's, there's avenues of teaching, <clears throat> but if you feel in your mind, and you may believe it, you know, there's, there's women ministers in other denominations. I feel like in their own mind... They have reason that they're called to preach. Based on the word of God, you're not. That calling's not coming from, from God, okay? That's coming from your misinterpretation of that. <clears throat> you know, if you feel a burden, if you're really good at uh, playing guitar, and you feel a burden that you want to play guitar in public worship, well, that's not coming from the Lord. Because the pattern of the New Testament is for us to sing with our voices, right? And we're thankful to uh, listen to good music and, and uh, listen to things and even play the guitar in the right setting. But that's not God's ordained means in public worship. Uh, we're thankful for people that have a great voice and, and can, can sing, uh, sound great singing by themselves. But if you feel a burden to sing a solo in church, that's not coming from the Lord because the pattern is congregational worship. Okay, and those are very, very simple examples in regards to public worship. But now, let's think about personal morality, okay? If you feel like that you're in love and you want to marry someone, but they're an unbeliever in Jesus Christ, that's not coming from the Lord. Because the Bible makes it explicitly clear you are not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever, okay? And that's why it's so important to have a good structure <clears throat> and a multitude of counselors that you can rely upon, because especially young people, especially teenagers, they have a very difficult time discerning lust from love. Let's just, let's just get real, okay? Mm -hmm. And you, you need 
people that can help you in that discernment. Now, if you feel like that you are called to marry someone who's an unbeliever, that's your feelings. That's not coming from the Lord because it's contrary to God's word, right? Um, if you feel like that it's okay to live with someone prior to marriage, that's coming from you. That's not coming from the Lord. That's contrary to God's word. And there are children of God, no doubt, that struggle with this. And uh, it's not just non-elect unregenerates. I mean, a, a child of God can have uh, some degree of attraction to the same gender. Well, if you have that attraction, guess what? The God's word says it's wrong. And just like every other deed of, deed of the flesh, you've got to mortify it. I mean, there, there are multitudes of different avenues of susceptibility that God's children have, but, but instead we've reached this environment in general Christianity. Praise God we've held our line in the Primitive Baptist Church. But in general Christianity, you have this idea that all these things we're talking about, people who pro profess to be Christians, they feel that because my personal, I feel like that this is okay, that my personal experience is more trustworthy than the truth of God's word. And unfortunately, there are many people in, in churches in Christianity that are compromising to accommodate these people. And this is a verse, as I've kind of thought about this, this is a verse that I believe is just so <clears throat> applicable to our current <clears throat> Christian environment. And this applied to, this is Isaiah chapter 4 and verse 1. Uh, this, this certainly applied to Old Testament Israel back in the day. They wanted to uh, give the pretense of worship of Jehovah God, but then not fully obey all the commandments of Jehovah God. And unfortunately, God's people, there's no new thing under the sun, and we're just just as confused nowadays as, as they were back then and in every other century too. But in, in Isaiah chapter 4 and verse 1, <clears throat> it says, In that day, seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by thy name to take away our reproach. In other words, we want to do what we want to do. We just want to tip our cap and have a name that can make things easier to where we're not dealing with reproach. That they don't really have a desire for fidelity of marriage, right? One man and one woman for one lifetime. Obviously, the Bible does not support polygamy. I mean, there is not a single time. Every time that people went against God's word and they married more than one more than one woman, it was nothing but problems, right? Nothing but problems. And that's just most of the time when they had two, you know, what about seven here, you know? Seven women saying that, they, but the point is though, they don't want to be married to the man. They don't have a desire to be, to, to commit to covenant faithfulness to the man. No, they just want to take his name to make things easier for them, but we just are going to do what we want to do. And th that, environment in Christianity that we have today of this, this sinker sensitive movement that that what really what is important is how I feel and how I perceive things to be listen we have to always go back to the word of God as the source of absolute truth and then you have the scoffers right you have the scoffers that say well there's no source of absolute truth which is just so foolish on its face because it sounds to me like you believe in absolute truth because when you start saying things like no and every and making 100% statements, it sure sounds to me like a statement that there's no absolute truth. It sounds a lot like your belief that that's absolutely true, right? I mean, you start thinking about these things logically. I mean, you clearly believe in absolute truth. The, re the reality is you just don't like God's truth, right? You just don't like God telling you what to do. And that, that's really what it boils down to. I mean, man wants to do what he wants to do with no accountability. I mean, it's not that he, he has no ability to understand there's a higher deity, right? I mean, even creation testifies of the glory of God. 
I mean, the imprints of the Creator on are on everything in His creation. I saw this little uh, this little meme this week that had the picture of a lung and all the different, you know, I guess there's veins in a lung, lung, but you know, uh, the picture of the lung, okay, on the on the uh, uh, X-ray. And then it said that, you know, we, we breathe in what the trees breathe out and then vice versa. And then it had this picture of a tree and the branches of that tree. And it looked almost exactly like the x-ray of the lung, right? And, you know, people like look at things like that. And for you to look at that and openly reject that that happened randomly it says that the fool has said in his heart there is no God uh, I agree with what I've heard many preachers say he can't say it in his head he can't <laughs> you can't in your head reject the truth of the creator all around you instead the problem is he has a heart and a stony heart that chooses to reject what his head clearly sees okay and that's really what it boils down to, is that man in his nature, and that nature is not eradicated when we're born again. So we still struggle with that as born-again children of God, that there's still something inside of us that wants to do what we want to do, that same problem that Adam had in the garden, that we want to be gods, right? I mean, and, and Satan knew that. And he exploited that desire. So what did he say? Oh, if you eat this, God's holding back on you. God's, God's preventing you from something better. You shall be as gods. And they, they wanted that. Even in an unfallen state, they wanted to do what they wanted to do and to ignore God's commandments. Okay? <clears throat> and nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. We have that nature inside of us. But... So many people, and we're prone to this too. A lot of this is a message of not condemnation, but discernment. <laughs> we need to be able to, to discern things. Not that we're abjectly doing things against God's word, but we have to be able to discern the environment around us to be able to, to not, just, not just be legalistic Pharisees and, and judge other people too harshly, but we need to discern. You know, uh, I, don't, I don't know where we're at, uh, in the full story of redemption and how close we are to the Lord's second coming. But I tell you, things start kind of, you should see things around you that make you start raising your spiritual eyebrows, you know? And, and uh, I, I do believe from my understanding of Scripture that, that the Middle East, the physical location of the Middle East is going to be very, very important the closer we come to the Lord's second coming. So when I start seeing things like earthquakes, in Turkey and Syria that are killing like 40,000 people, you know? That's the kind of, like, I don't know. I, I don't know exactly uh, how that plays into some end-time stuff. And maybe the, I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's a bigger one coming. I don't know. But the things that make you start making your eyebrows raise, you know? Uh, we want to look up for, our, we hope our redemption's drawing nigh. Uh, then you see <clears throat> some other things happening. And just, just the ungodliness and the blasphemy that happened at the Grammys, uh, if you've seen that, uh, hopefully you've discerned that properly. If you haven't, glad you didn't. Um, but another thing that's really stirred my mind, again, dis discerning, discerning the things that we see around us through the lens of God's Word. Um, I'm thankful to see what the Lord appears to be doing up at Asbury University in Asbury, Kentucky. If you don't know about that, there was, uh, they have a normal chapel on Wednesday, normal message. There's some people that stayed to pray, and then they kept on staying, and they continued to have worship. Uh, they're actually decided, because, you know, at some point the kids got to go to class, so they decided uh, after about two weeks that they were going to cease that, but they had continuous worship that whole time. And uh, if we pray for revival, we see a whole generation, you know, people, the, the statistics are just staggering of people 25 and under that are not just leaving the church, but like rejecting God, rejecting Christianity. The numbers are just staggering. 
Uh, and it's been so interesting to just kind of watch different people's opinion of that and how things were, were unfolding. Uh, and then you have some people that uh, it's just so sad that some people are such curmudgeons. And, you know, I've got a little bit of that in me, too. I mean, I'm an old Baptist. You know, i got a little bit of curmudgeon in me. Uh, but if we're praying for revival and then your first response is to see these young people that are praying and serving God, if your first response is to look at that with skepticism and to think that that's not of the Lord, that's not good, okay? <laughs> Just to put it plainly, like, that's not good if that's your first response. Now, are they doing things exactly the way that we see in the New Testament for biblical worship? Well, no, you know, but if they are praying and they have a desire to change, now, they're calling it uh, externally the, the Asbury Revival, but revival, uh, I saw a really good quote, is not determined in the moment, it's determined in reflection, right? Uh, you can't say I'm being revived. Now, you can feel it, you know, you can feel it, but revival is determined by what happens after, okay? Uh, so, personally, I'm very thankful to See, there's people that are devoted, and that, that, there's other people at uh, other universities all across the nation that have been trying to do similar things, and, and I trust that's of the Holy Spirit. Praise God for that. But if I did have a concern, uh, it would not be those people there that were the initiators of this movement. Instead, the reason why this became so big is because you have these external parties that then all across the nation, I even saw some people internationally, that came to want to see and to experience and to examine what they thought was happening. And, you know, there were some people that were worshiping <clears throat> ignorantly in Athens in Acts chapter 17. And the Lord tells us there in Acts 17 that these are people there in Athens that only desire to see some new thing. And, you know, that's just, that's just the way we're wired, right? As humans, that's the way we're wired. We want to see the new thing. And I feel like that there's this whole group of people. I mean, praise God for those devoted students that are students at Asbury. But then the reason why it became such a big deal is because you have all these external parties coming in. And I believe that that is a symptom of people really wanting to have an experience, okay, have an experience that they are wanting to have as their true source of truth, okay? And we, that's just so prevalent in Christianity today that they are wanting to have this high spiritual experience when the majority of discipleship is trudging through the daily mundane faithfulness. It's not going from uh, spiritual high to spiritual high to spiritual high, okay? I'm not looking for experiences. Instead, the experiences strengthen me. We're thankful for them, right? I mean, we've been encouraged and refreshed this weekend, right? But you don't live on the mountaintop. <laughs> Most of the time, you live down at least at sea level, sometimes in, the, sometimes in the valley, right? I mean, like, you don't live on the mountaintop. <laughs> Nobody lives at the top of the mountain. And I believe that we are prone to want to seek that experience. But with a discerning mind, okay, this is the premise, with a discerning mind that I am prone to misinterpret my experience. Okay? That doesn't mean that, it, that it's wrong, but you have to have a source through which you test, is this true, right? Those simple things that we mentioned earlier. If you feel like you're being burdened to do something that's contrary to God's word, God's not burdening you to do that, right? He's not going to burden you to do something that's contrary to God's word. Okay, <clears throat> let's go to the Mount of Transfiguration. Let's go to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9.
verse 1. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you that there be, uh, that there be some that stand here which shall not taste death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And as a side note, um, there is a errant teaching that's very prevalent uh, among Christianity, even some pockets of primitive Baptist that is known as preterism that would say that all prophecy in the New Testament was fulfilled in 70 AD. And this is really about the only verse that you could totally take out of context to, uh, to teach that. And it's a very dangerous teaching, by the way, because if you, much of the New Testament is about us being watchful. And if the teaching is that none of this applies to you, none of, none of this prophecy about things, the signs uh, of the Lord's second coming, those birth pains right before uh, the second coming, much of the New Testament is about you being watchful. Well, it's very dangerous to say you don't need to be watchful because it's all, uh, it's all already been fulfilled in 70 AD, which is just simply not the case. So what's the right context of this? What's the right context of this? There shall be some that shall not taste death till they've seen the kingdom of God come with power. It's amazing how simple uh, God's word is when you read things in context and keep on reading. Well, I mean, what, is, what happens right after this? The transfiguration, right? What's he talking about right here? There are some people that before their death, they're going to see the kingdom of God come with power. And they saw it with their own two eyes when Jesus was transfigured right here. So that's the appropriate application of this verse. Not taking it out of context to try to make every prophecy in the Bible fulfilled in 70 AD. It just, just doesn't fit, okay? So, verse 2. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John and leadeth them into a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining exceedingly white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. Now notice this in verse 6, okay? For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. Now, another interesting, somewhat humorous side note to this is in Luke's account of this, it says that they were sleeping and they were woke up and then they saw this, you know, we, we make a lot of foolish decisions and sometimes we say some foolish things right when we've just woke up from being from a nap, right? So it, it, it's, just, it's just like Peter. <laughs> Bless his heart. It's just like Peter to have been woken up from a nap, right? And then see this and then say something totally foolish, okay? But he wakes up and he's afraid. He's afraid. But I want you to notice his emotion of fear caused him to not know what to say, and by the way, it's a very good rule of thumb. Many times if you don't know what to say, it's a good idea to not say anything at all. Sometimes the best thing you can say <laughs> is absolutely nothing. You know, what he should have done is just drunk the moment in, right? Jesus doesn't need you to add your commentary to his transfiguration, right? He doesn't need you to say anything. Instead, Peter, you know, always the need to, you know, express his own opinion, and he said something that was very foolish, but I want you to notice, he, I think he was probably very moved to have seen Elias and Moses, which by the way, don't want to get sidetracked on this too much, but it's so interesting, uh, you know, many ministers have uh, addressed this, you know, Elijah kind of represents the prophets and Moses represents the law and Jesus is, is greater than the, than the law and the prophets and all that, which are all really good points. But it's very interesting that Elijah went up to heaven uh, in chariot of fire, right? So his body's in heaven. There's only two, uh, three bodies in heaven, Jesus, Enoch, and, and Elijah, right? There's only three bodies up there. So Elijah had a, has a physical body in heaven, but Moses doesn't. And obviously, they've never seen either one, even if 
you know, people that saw Elijah in the flesh, they don't have the ability to recognize him by his physical attributes, right? Because they never saw him. And it's just amazing how they recognized clearly through just the Holy Spirit that people that they did not know, they knew who they were. They knew who Elijah... So I'm sure they were reveling in, you know, because people kind of joke around like that. You know, when I get to heaven, you know, I really want to ask the Apostle Paul such and such. You know, I really want to talk to such and such in heaven. You know, I want to ask him about such... Well, the Apostles may have had those kind of conversations too, right? And, and, you know, and, and maybe they were saying, man, I'd really love to ask Moses what it was like on Mount Sinai or something. So I think they were probably just pretty overwhelmed with like, wow, this is the Holy Spirit revealed to them. This is Elijah and Moses. And, you know, they are to be commended for their faithfulness, right? I mean, I mean that's not to uh, diminish the, their, how much they served the Lord in the past, but in in comparison to the uh, transfigured Jesus, the focus should not have been on Elijah and Moses, right? So he wakes up, he's afraid, he doesn't know how to respond. He's just enamored, amazed by the fact that I'm seeing Elijah and Moses. And then he says, we need to make three tabernacles, okay? And one for each of you. And then the Lord puts the focus on the son and says in verse seven, this is my beloved son, hear ye him, okay? But I want you to understand, even in this amazing experience, because Peter got, let his emotions of the moment get the best of him, he said something and his interpretation of what he was experiencing was abjectly wrong. <laughs> Does that make sense? Okay, And that's why we have to have a source and a standard and a filter through which we interpret the experiences that we go through, the burdens that we feel. You know, it's very difficult to discern God's individual will for your life. Like, that's difficult. Now, now to just say in general, when the Bible talks about the will of God, you know, it's your will, it's God's will for you to give thanks God's will for you to abstain from fornication. There are simple things that it says it's God's will for you to do. That's typically how God's will is described in Scripture. But when we talk about God's will, we're talking about what's the individual path and the individual decisions that I make that charts my course of discipleship, right? You have this framework. Uh, now, again, you, you interpret God's will in that framework through his word. Okay, it's God's will for you to abstain from fornication. We are talking about earlier about living with someone. Okay, well, if you think God's will is for you to live with someone, well, clearly, that's not God's will, right? Because it's his will for you to abstain from fornication. So he gives you a framework and a pattern through which to make decisions, but the individual decisions of marriage and houses and jobs and and all these different things, those are individual to you and the Spirit guiding you in your individual path. And that's difficult to discern. <laughs> it's difficult to discern. But you have to discern it through the structure and the lens of God's Word, right? Again, another very simple example. I feel like that the Lord is burdening me to move to Alaska. Okay, well, how many Purna Baptist churches are there in Alaska? Zero, okay, end of discussion, okay, that's simple, mark that off, okay, and then, I mean, that's how we process decisions, right, through the lens of God's word, <clears throat> and we have to have enough humility to when maybe my perception of a situation is different than God's word, I have to be willing to say, let God be true and every man a liar, even when that man's me, <laughs> Let God's word be true, and every man a liar, even if that man or woman is me, okay? A couple experiences to highlight before we, can <clears throat> before we close. Um, Naaman, Naaman in the Old Testament. We can highlight a lot of these. These are a few that came to mind. Naaman, uh, the Syrian general that was a leper, and he was told about <clears throat> Elisha, 
to uh, heal him of his of his leprosy, and he had he had expectations that uh, the reality didn't uh, didn't meet the the expectations. You know, he he showed up and he expected. Uh, the prophet to come out and do some great thing and to touch his leprosy and have some big, bold proclamation. But he was annoyed because he didn't even come out and see him himself. Elisha just sent a messenger. So he had expectations, which this is a whole other topic. Uh, much of our experience and our dissatisfaction or satisfaction has a lot to do with our perception and with our expectations, right? Right. <laughs> uh, Naaman showed up with a lot of expectations and he really didn't just want to be healed. He wanted to enjoy the show, right? He wanted, he wanted the, the uh, prophet to come out and say, wow, I'm so thankful you're so important, Naaman, that you came to me. What a, what a blessing that you came to me to where I can, can heal you. Instead, he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm busy. Just go tell them to watch in the river. You know, I'm just going to send the, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of busy today. So just send the messenger. This is what you need to do. Let me get back to what I was doing, you know? And Nathan was offended by that, right? So then he's like, I'm just going to go home. And, and then one of his servants said, listen, if he told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? And then finally he was like, well, yeah. And then he decided to go down and wash in the river. I could just, <laughs> I could just envision Naaman just being mad right? When he's getting down in the water, you know, fine. You know, you're, you're right. Servants, you know, yes, I guess I showed up to be actually healed and I don't want to go down and wash in this dirty river. There's plenty of other better rivers that I could wash in. Fine. Because he said, and I can just envision him going down in the water, just, <clears throat> just gritting his teeth. And then he's healed, right? Then he's healed because he did what God told him to do even though he didn't really like it okay uh there's another account here in luke chapter four <clears throat> luke chapter four five rather luke chapter five verse one and it came to pass that as the people passed upon him to hear the word of God, and he stood by the lake Gennesaret, saw two ships standing by the lake. The fishermen were going out of them and washing their nets. He entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. And when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep and let your nets down for a draught. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all night and we have taken nothing. Okay? Now, it's one thing to just say, We fished all night, we didn't get anything. But also take into account that Peter is a professional fisherman, right? He's not just a casual fisherman, he is a professional fisherman. And he knows that if we put our nets in this area for like four hours, there is like a 0.001% chance that when we put it back the 100th time that there's all of a sudden going to be fish there, right? I mean, like that's just not how fishing works. <laughs> so as, as a professional fisherman, he's saying, Jesus, with all the reverence in the world, you're wrong, okay? I know what I'm doing. We have toiled all night. There's no fish here. What you're saying is wrong. I think Peter had all of those thoughts rolling in his head. But I want you to notice how he concluded his statement. Okay? Master, we've toiled all night, and we've taken nothing. Everything, everything about my personal experience says, Lord, you're wrong. Nevertheless... At thy word, I'm going to do what you said. Okay? That is the statement that we have to arrive at. <laughs> Everything about my personal experience says this is the opposite, okay, of what the right thing to do is. But this is why it's so important because some people take this way too far. We have to have discernment because some people feel like and say that God called me to do all this stuff. 
And it may not be directly in opposition to God's word. But that old curmudgeon in me comes out, and I have a difficult time thinking <laughs> that that's really what God called you to do, right? And then, boy, you want to talk about some of these people I have conversations with other people in the church, in other churches, and they're like literally having this war of words between one another that God called me to do this. God told me this is what we're supposed to do. And another person said, well, that's interesting because God said to me that we're supposed to do this. And they're using this, this God told me as a club over somebody else's head to say, this is, uh, we're going to do what I want to do. Now, it gets very confusing when God told four or five different people what the right thing to do is, and all those four or five different people, uh, four or five different things are in opposition, right? Somebody's not telling the truth. Or, or, or they're not discerning the spirit properly, right? And, and I've had conversations with people like that, that, you know, different people in the church are saying, God told me this is what we're supposed to do. I would encourage you, don't ever say that. Don't ever say that. I believe that the Lord may be burdening, burdening us in this direction. And if that burden continues and it becomes stronger, then we, we hope that that is of the Lord. But don't you ever start hitting people over the head with God told me so, ever. Because you're not that infallible. <laughs> and it causes, causes great dissension in the church when people start saying, God told me so. And praise God, we've never dealt with that here, okay? Uh, but that is, that's a real reality in, in other churches. You know, you have all these opinions, and the reality is someone just doesn't like the other people's opinion, so their, their trump card is God told me so. Well, he probably didn't tell you so. We all have to discern the Spirit. But nevertheless, at thy word, okay? Nevertheless, at thy word, I'm going to do the opposite of my conclusion from my natural experience. I want to highlight one more thing <clears throat> before we conclude uh, in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, because Satan will always latch on and exploit our weaknesses when we begin to have a little bit of doubt. You know, the old statement that, you know, you're giving him, giving him an inch, he'll take a foot. He, when he gets those little bitty inklings of doubt, he wants to throw flames on that. But we have to have a reminder that even if my conclusions of even my own self are wrong, let God be true and every man a liar, okay? Because Satan's desire, and this is, we're going to talk about hobby horses and pet peeves. This just burns me up to hear preachers trying to convince children of God they're not saved. Listen, that is the opposite of what a preacher is called to do. And actually, what we should say is when, when you begin to have those doubts, my calling is not to make you think that maybe God's going to throw you in hell. Instead, you evaluate your experience through God's word. And here in 1 John, we have those, those hallmarks of a child of God. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, chapter 5 and verse 1 says that is evidence that you are born of God. Do you love the brethren? That's evidence that you've passed from death unto life. Do you love God? Do you love God? We love him because he first loved us. Those three verses. So when Satan starts doubt, making us doubt that we're really even a child of God, and, and there is no child of God that is, that is immune from that because we all see our sin. I mean, we understand better than anybody total depravity, right? We know how sinful we are in our nature. And when you make a mistake, which we all inevitably do, and the Lord dumps that, uh, and uh, Satan dumps that on your head and makes you think that the song that we sang this morning, well, am I really born again? You know, am I really a child of God? You go back to the truth of God's word and say, I, I believe in Jesus Christ. I love the Lord. I love the brethren. Therefore, I can reassure myself. But there are many children of God that are, that are, you know, if they did have that figurative car wreck that everybody's trying to terrify them over, you know where they're going to be in heaven? You know where they're going to be? In heaven, right? Because of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But 
In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, my little children, let us love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and truth. Hereby know we that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. One of the most important purposes of God giving us his word is so that we can know and have assurance. God does not intend for us, it's very detrimental to our discipleship for us to be walking around the whole, our whole life wringing our hands, you know, am I really going to heaven or not? No, he wants you to know that you're going to heaven so you can serve him faithfully, right? But, verse 20, sometimes our heart can get confused. Sometimes our mind can get confused. If our heart condemn us, if our hearts condemn us, and I'll also say that if your heart condemns, that, that's that's a, a fourth of those of those uh, birthmarks of a child of God. Do you feel a conviction of sin? Do you feel a conviction for things that you do that are, that are in opposition to God's word? Well, a child, a, a unregenerate person does not feel that. They have a hardened, stony heart. They don't feel that. So. If our hearts condemn us, okay, well, if your heart condemns you, then that's not an evidence that you're unsaved and I got to confess Christ again. No, that's evidence, one more evidence that you are already saved, right? But it's so important for us to be grounded that when our hearts condemn us, for if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Because our hearts will inevitably condemn us. <laughs> That's why you have to know those hallmarks. Do I love the Lord? Do I love the brethren? Do I believe in Jesus? Do I feel conviction of sin? If you answer yes to all those, then take confidence yet again in truth that Christ has already finished the work of salvation on your behalf, right? But this is where we get into some of the different courtrooms of justification, okay? Uh, Justification by blood, yes, we are saved eternally, nothing by the blood of Jesus. But justification by faith, boy, you can have an incorrect conclusion of even your own state, right? How many children of God are, uh, they're not, they don't feel like they're being justified by faith in the sense of my only hope of, of salvation is putting faith in Jesus Christ alone. Instead, I put my hope of justification in my works, a prayer, a belief, Lifetime of good works, whatever the case is. Well, what happens when you put the basis of your justification before God? What happens when you put your confidence instead of faith in Christ? You put it in your works. Inevitably, you're going to reach a wrong conclusion because you're going to properly understand that my works are not good enough, right? You're inevitably going to doubt. I didn't pray that prayer good enough. Right? I wasn't sincere when I did it. I, I haven't lived a good enough 51% good, good, good life. You're right. You can't. <laughs> so you can, a child of God, in their courtroom justification by faith in their own conscience, they can reach a wrong conclusion. Right? Because they're putting confidence in something that I do, and I know my works aren't good enough, so therefore I feel that I'm not really saved. Well, what do you do when you're struggling with that? You have to go back to the Word of God, right? You have to go back to these truths to reassure ourselves. And there's no truth we need to be reminded of more. If our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart, right? There is a higher courtroom than my opinion. <laughs> you know, that, that's an important truth for us to realize, right? There is a higher truth than my opinion. <laughs> and that higher truth is the Lord and his word. But, beloved, if our hearts condemn us not, then we have confidence. Then we have assurance toward the Lord. So, we need to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, Right? We need to interpret the world around us through the lens of God's word and through the guidance of the Holy Spirit because even well-meaning, godly people, children of God, can reach wrong conclusions 
based on their interpretation of their personal experience. And if it happens that that personal experience is in opposition to God's word, then we have to say, let God's word be true. And I'm wrong. I'm wrong. We pray that the Holy Spirit will give us the discernment and the guidance to be able to evaluate these things and be reminded of the amazing treasure that God has given us in his word. Again, I didn't spend as much time on this in the messages I really intended to, but this divinely inspired and divinely preserved word of God is even more sure and reliable than what Peter saw with his own two eyes on the Mount of Transfiguration. I mean, that is amazing. That is amazing. But you want to know what Peter did not do? He didn't go around exalting that experience. No, he went around preaching the word. Preaching the word. Because this is more reliable than even what I saw with my own two eyes. Now, I also want to add the caveat we also don't need to diminish emotion and experiences either, though. You know? In the church, one of my minister's friends uh, makes the joke that sometimes primitive Baptists can be like mannequins. Y'all can laugh. That's okay. <laughs> it's true. It's true. If that, I, y'all express yourself in your own way. I'm not asking you to be charismatics and run around. And, uh, you know, that's not, that's not the Holy Spirit either, right? But it is okay, you know, this is not a museum, this is not a golf tournament, you know. It's okay to, to express yourself if you feel the movement of the Spirit. Don't fabricate it, okay. Because that's what happens in a charismatic church. They are all running around and acting crazy and people think that's how you fit in, so they start doing it too, okay. Don't fabricate it. But also, worship and service to God is an emotional thing, right? I mean, this is the most important thing in our life. I mean, the kingdom of God is first and foremost in our life. I mean, it is an emotional thing. And by the way, your experiences are so important in your walk of discipleship because your, your personal experience is how your faith becomes personal and real to you, you know? You have to go through experiences where it's not just, this is what I was raised in. This is what my parents believe. But I go through experiences where I personally have witnessed the truths of God's word expressed in my life. I have, I have personally witnessed his faithfulness and his love and his mercy. Those experiences are important, right? We don't want to diminish that either. But you have to interpret those experiences through the lens of God's word, okay? We have to interpret those through the lens of God's word. And if I happen to misinterpret it, we always exalt God's word instead of our own experiences. And we pray that God would bless us to do that. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.